Hey, welcome to Raven Debriefs. This is episode two of the second season, and I'm your host, Susan Smitten. Today we took a walk with participants in the Indigenous Law Research Unit, or ILRU, of the University of Victoria. To start, we spoke with Val Napoleon, the director of the world's first joint degree program in Indigenous and Common Law, along with her colleague, Rebecca Johnson. I'm Val Napoleon. I'm from Soto First Nation, which is in the Treaty 8 part of British Columbia in northeast British Columbia. I'm also an adopted member of the uh, House of Lujan, which is a Gixan house group in northwest British Columbia. And I am a professor at the Faculty of Law. I teach trans-systemic program that we call the Indigenous Law Degree Program. And I have a research chair at the law school, and I'm the director of the Indigenous Law Research Unit. Um, my name is Rebecca Johnson, and I am my. I was born in what I now know to be Treaty Seven territory in Alberta. Um, I've been teaching at the University of Victoria for twenty years now, um, and I'm the associate director of the Indigenous Law Research Unit and the director of the graduate program here at UVic. The question of connections is kind of in many ways one of the interesting questions for thinking about the revitalization of Indigenous law. For many settler Canadians, kind of the question of how to think about a different way of living in the world is a really big question. So for me, the opportunity to work in a collaborative way, to learn what we don't know and start to figure out how we have a place in that work has been the most delicious parts of the collaboration. The original idea came from an article I read a very long time ago about two uh, law professors, Jewish law professors in California. And what they wanted was structured, supported ways uh, to research answers to the questions that people had about within Jewish law. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> because that idea of researching questions from within different legal orders is exactly what we need to do. You know, I was up in the Hazleton area, Gixan and Wet'suwet'en lands for a lot of decades. And, you know, I had the benefit of being in the background and supporting the work that was going on with uh, For those of you who don't know, Delgamuk was a landmark Supreme Court of Canada case brought by the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en nations that established Aboriginal title as an ancestral right protected by the Canadian Constitution. It was also a landmark case because it allowed, for the first time, Indigenous oral histories to be treated as equal to other types of evidence. Okay, back to Val. In that case, you know, over a period of a year, the Gixan and Wet'suwet'en witnesses, as their own expert witnesses, talked to the court 
about their ways of being lawful, about all aspects of their laws. They gave legal precedent, all the different forms of legal precedent through which they recorded the law and its application through time. They talked about the systems of accountability and it was this huge, rich, amazing experience of, of seeing that go on and seeing people's commitment to it, being able to see the work that people were doing insofar as their histories, their legal histories, insofar as their citizenry, insofar as the lands and the resources that they owned, like all of the different ways that they structured governance and made decisions. Like all of that existed for the Gixan and Witsuotan. So it had to exist for other people too. And so how do you enable people to work with that today? Drawing on that, those intellectual traditions and all of that wisdom in order to solve the problems of today. And what I learned is that the work of every generation is to solve the problems before it by drawing on the wisdom and the legal resources of the past. It has to live, and it has to live in people's lives, inside people's families, inside people's communities. In order to do that work, we had to walk off the cliff and just say, we can do this. Like indigenous law is real. It's a part of people's lives. If there are gaps and there are distortions because of colonialism, but it's there and we're going to work with it as if it's real law, as if it's law like any other legal tradition in the world. So it was a combination of events and opportunities and amazing people to work with. One of those amazing people is Juliana Alexander, a Sequetmik Shushwap elder working with Val and Rebecca's team from the Indigenous Law Research Unit from her home base in South Central British Columbia. We reached her by a crackly landline on a day just before her 75th birthday. My English name is Juliana Florence Alexander. My name means woman form. I was born in Splatchin in Enderby, BC. I'm one of the Sequetmik elders. I, I, I will be 76 year old in January 28th. I was born in 1945. At that time, we didn't know any other language. It was all Sequetmik, which is Shushwap. Well, for me, I guess I guess uh, for an elder and our people here, like we live by the language and the law that it and the stories and the legends and the, you know, the guidance that we get from the ancestors and our, our parents and grandparents, how we were brought up. And I was also a residential survivor of the school as well. So I didn't lose it. I, I guess I had it embedded in me, but I just had to reawaken my knowledge and um, 
get over the shame, the pain, and the hurt. My great-grandfather, he's got only one name, and it's Ahuhilia. My great-grandfather's name was Alexander Cyprian, and my grandmother was Suzette Louis Haskett. My father is Adrienne Alexander Kiprian. My mother is Mary Narcisse Louis. I had four sisters and three brothers. I'm the only living sibling left. I've had a great, successful, and rich relationship with the lawyer Jessica Ash, and along with her uh, colleagues from the UBIC unit, which has been real exciting and full of uh, gratitude for us all. To me, what Indigenous law means is um, it's the free will of our society that uh, exemplifies a sacred duty to the seventh generation upcoming in the future. We, the Sequapic Nation, as a sovereign nation, are seeking to live in peace, freedom, and prosperity. With all humanity in accordance with our own traditional laws that are united in our, our sacred relationship on our ancestral territories. It's our responsibility as the current leaders and knowledge keepers to ensure the continuation of our territorial authority over our lands for the future generations. The Sequapim nations have never ceded, surrendered, or sold our land as a result, retained the Aboriginal title and the rights of our Sequapim Kulu territory. So to me, this would be the real true justice of what uh, Indigenous law is that involves the Sequapim nations to date. There's a lot of uh, struggle, I guess, to to want to live a freedom that we've had before. It's very hard to rebuild because it took um, 150 years for them to destroy. And we're only, what, <laughs> in our 50 years of struggle? I think the biggest bottom line is water and the land. And without those, we're going to look like the moon. You're listening to Raven Debriefs, and today we're talking with Rebecca Johnson and Val Napoleon of the Indigenous Law Research Unit. Here, Val explains how the knowledge of elders is being used to draw out and braid Indigenous laws together with other knowledge traditions. Here's a systematic way and a critical way that we can draw law from oral histories. And so that's what we we started to do. And then here's how we take the law that's drawn from the oral histories, and here's how we synthesize it into a body of law that answers a specific question. And so it was to create resources that were accessible, that people could add to, so it's not creating a code, um, 
but information and processes about indigenous law that could be used to solve problems, which after all is the work of, of law. And then since then, of course, we now have different methodologies and we've used it um, on, across many different uh, subject areas. It's really grown. And we're also hoping that other sister units can get established in Canada, but also, you know, in Australia and Norway and different parts of the world, because there's a real hunger there for that work. I like the language of hunger. I think when we start thinking about what it means to revitalize legal orders, revitalization means not only like the description of something, but it's um, being a part of what it means to nourish us in our lives. So in this work of revitalization, uh, one of the questions that often comes up is like, to whom does law belong and to whom does law apply? this way and this is very true within like just north american and western legal systems to imagine law as something outside that is mostly a policing force that disciplines or punishes or keeps us in line right rather than um as something that uh that nourishes as people are looking at revitalization of indigenous legal orders Another thing that I think has to happen at the same time is a revitalization of non-Indigenous legal orders as well, because we're in a time around the globe in our ways of thinking about law that I think is impoverished. We've not been attending to the nourishing dimensions of law. We've been attending only to these external exoskeleton kind of ways. Is this the kind of thing that only Indigenous people can speak to what Indigenous law is? or what is the place of, of others in doing that work. As a non-Indigenous person born in Treaty 7 territory, then what are the ways that I live a lawful life within that territory in, this, in the same ways that I would want to live a lawful life if I go for a visit to England or to France or to Germany. So that law applies to me when I'm in those spaces. And when I travel, part of my job as a traveler is to be at least knowledgeable enough to know that I am in another place with other laws and that my appreciation of that place, my time in that place will be richer and more fulfilling if I have at least some knowledge of, of lawfulness in that place. One of the challenges is having all of us start to think more curiously around what Indigenous legal orders have to offer what they have to give and what they oblige us to do. So one of the things that I love about what Rebecca has just said is that she's brought two big aspects of the work together. Like so on the one hand, it enables people to see Indigenous law as law. So all of the different things that are produced, whether it's a graphic narrative, whether it's uh, the reports that communities have said could be public, uh, and you know the gendered uh, toolkits and um, like all of the amazing uh, work that's that's gone on, like that helps to build and create a larger public imagination about law and as Rebecca says our obligations and so on within that larger frame like if we can't imagine what's possible for us 
and for the people around us, then, then we end up with that very impoverished view of things. The other big aspect of the work is engaging with communities to rebuild citizens, rebuild and reclaim the language of law, engaging with communities in those respectful ways, um, interactions and questions and explorations about different understandings of the narratives, all of those conversations is rebuilding our citizens, which, you know, and our citizenships right across this land, as you know, have been slammed by colonization. So there's this internal work that is made possible through the, the way that Ilru works, but there's also this broader work that is, is going on nationally and internationally with that larger legal and political imagination. The research unit was only established in 2012. We're talking about eight years of learning how to do the work, how to develop the training, how to equip students to do the work, to find support to work with communities, and all of the things that, um, that you know, we've collectively done. So in addition to the research unit and everything we're doing, we built an Indigenous law degree program. The, the work of the research unit, I think, was critical in expanding the initial imagination so that when we talked about an Indigenous law degree program, people didn't go running out of fear. It, it, we made it cognizable, we made it real. We said, we're doing this work right now. You know, there needs to be lots more people doing this and we're supporting more people to do it through the Indigenous law degree program, through all of the students that we hire through uh, ILRU, through supporting other people elsewhere in the world to take on the work. You know, who knows where it's going to end, if it'll end. I don't think there's any arrival place with law because humans continue to be messy and demanding, but it's really exciting. The Indigenous Law Degree Program, we call it sometimes the JID. It's a four-year program where students will get two law degrees. They'll get an Indigenous law degree and a Canadian law degree. The first two years are, they are what we're calling trans-systemic courses. Uh, in the third and fourth year, the students have field schools in cooperation and partnership with different communities on things that those communities want to work with. The key thing that students are learning is to think about under what conditions does law develop differently? So lots of common law property developed you know, in the, with, uh, you know, resulting from feudalism, resulting from large urban centers, people living together in small spaces that where there's lots of conflict about different things. And so how does that shape common law property? Lots of um, what might be considered intellectual property for the Gixan is actually governance. It's, it's the governance structure insofar as the oral histories, insofar as the songs, the crests, the performances, and so on. And so it's, it, you have to look at the foundation of law in those different societies in order to appreciate its differences. So each of the subject areas is double. <laughs> it's a double, double program. 
We spoke with one of Val's students in the JID program, Carolyn Bellow. She is also a field researcher with ILRU and a member of Sequetmic Nation. She talks about the type of students and the type of lawyers that the program is attracting and producing. In the JID program, Val basically said that we're looking for someone besides having uh, the great marks and all of that stuff, you're going to have to uphold yourself really, really well <laughs> and know yourself inside and out. And, and if you had hardships, you know, discuss them. Like resiliency is like such a strong quality. So when I was doing my application, I said I had a business and I lost it from the recession and I had to rebuild and restructure where I was going at my background in fashion design. And I did a complete change over to law and I decided I was going to go into law school and I decided to create that plan and I managed to get there. It was a long plan. And now I'm coming from a C plus average in high school to get to where I am now. So it's quite the journey. I'm just explaining how special the GID program is believe me um there's some other people that also have amazing stories we are nothing like the the academic stuffy people that you see we actually have a really strong story that is getting us forward to get the dual law degree and what we plan to use use it for so it's yeah besides getting our common law degree like we're we're learning um the foundational portion of the common law degree but along with um, the trans-systemic law degree, which Val probably talked about, it helps us really understand how, how other Indigenous nations create their laws, or it, it also helps us to, to remain fluid in the moment when it, when it comes to dealing with Indigenous law and how, how we can make it solid in a, in a sense. We legitimately would would love indigenous communities to have their own laws like that that would be the best thing for indigenous people to have have that but we also want to do it carefully we don't want to just push our own ideas we we want the 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 people to to form out their their own their own laws and if it takes longer so be it as long as it it's concrete and it and it's solid and it stands in the face of common law. I guess you you, you can kind of see it as two bookends. We, we, want, we want it as strong as that other bookend. <laughs> Everyone is all uncertain how it's going to unfold for a JID helping in that process. We're not there yet, but we are, we are very um, optimistic that it's going to help a lot of organizations or communities going to cause these nice beautiful little ripples <laughs> I expect that the the next generation more big ripples and you have to give people time to get used to our laws and then all of a sudden it's it's normal everyone it, it'll be pretty much like a stop sign everyone just just respects it and understands it and that's the goal <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
This is Raven Debriefs, the show that explores the dynamics of how law is enacted on the lands and waters that we here in Canada call home. Ilru is inside the, the University of Victoria Faculty of Laws building. We had three other students besides myself work with, with Ilru directly, and we were working with quite a few Indigenous communities and organizations. Like I'm Sahuatan, but there was also some other organizations that was working with with Ilru on their own project. Trondic Wichin comes to mind. The Gitsan. My role is is minimally small. I'm a research assistant, just helping compile their information for their communities, or we're, we're set on specific tasks. And it's sort of almost the same sort of role if you were uh, in a law firm in a sense, but this one is is a, a lot different. Um, I feel there's a lot of flexibility and there's way too much laughter and smiles going on. <laughs> like I really enjoy myself with, with Ilru, like that whole group is just so amazing and, and it didn't feel like work, but it, it just, it just felt um, really good. Like you just got a glimpse of what 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 you're going to be doing with your your law degree. If this is how it is going to unfold, is how you're interpreting these indigenous communities' um, laws. You can't make it sound academic. You know those those really stuffy little documents with the the eight inch fonts using time Times Roman. <laughs> like honestly, I feel when you're talking like that, you you have to squint a little bit to listen. <laughs> no, I am a straight out 14 point aerial font. <laughs> you can easily understand our, our way of communication. And that, that's pretty much the way Ilru is. We, we, we will make it accessible to all community members. Like before I was a law student, I, I kind of was intimidated. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> these are law students and these are lawyers and I would kind of get intimidated but when you really meet them they're so warm and open and um, they're ready to talk to you and you feel at ease with them I, I didn't realize that's the way you could be as a as a lawyer like you you just see these these black suits and white and white shirts and black ties and you assume that's what a lawyer is They have a specific law student that they're looking for, they call it Ilru Beast, where we work really hard, yet at the same time, we have to be accessible. We, we have to be able to communicate with Indigenous communities and others really clearly and be warm and open. Like they, we pretty much all, all have that same sort of quality where you, you feel at ease with us and yet we will we will work really hard <laughs> we can't say that we just immediately just walk into a community and and they accept us and everything is all good there has to be structure in a sense and and formal formal ways of approaching communities we have steps where we say that um, the information you give us is yours we are taking your information, helping interpret what you want for your for your nation, 
we're ba basically they're throwing large balls of yarn at us and all we're doing as law students is is um, untangling it but that ball of yarn is still theirs all we're doing is just helping them along um, and to best explain it to their members and make sure that it's it's solid documents that will stand up towards common law as well so that's the most important thing so but they've created it we're just helping interpret what what they they want that that's it john burroughs in our first first year of law he expressed it so eloquently in our transistemic constitutional law class where he said that common law you can imagine are like these rocks but he said indigenous law is like the water and we're so fluid and we can move all over the place and we can go right around that rock and we can shape it. I really do believe that that is what we're going to do. You know that over time we are going to come through those common law, common law rocks and shape them. I, I made the decision to go to law school. I really wanted to help my people. They're my, they're my whole entire family, they're my world, and that, that's what's driving me to finish law school and, and to, to do this journey. So any, any law students, and I'm saying non-Indigenous and Indigenous, uh, the DID program is not just for Indigenous people, it's also for non-Indigenous that have that drive and that passion to help shape the rocks, <laughs> the rocks, the common law rocks, and they, they want to change, to create some, some change, then I, I think that that would be for them, for them as well. Don't be afraid of any failure, just to discuss your failures if you have them. They really love resiliency, because honestly, human beings, we make a lot of mistakes, but how resilient were you when you make that, when you made that mistake? Did you get back up and keep going? Then that, then this law program's for you then. <laughs> you know, the students are not going to be experts in Gixan law, but what they'll have is an ability to take what they've learned insofar as authoritative decision makers, insofar as legal responses, obligations, the functions and what the elements of those functions are. They'll be able to transfer that to other legal orders. So they'll assume that in those other legal orders, there will be authoritative decision makers. There will be precedents, legal histories that can be drawn on. They'll have that ability to, to think and work across legal orders. We have right now, we're on our third cohort. It's still the only kind of program uh, in the world, like professional degree program. There's no others that exist yet. I'm really proud of our students. What they're doing is they're helping to build this Indigenous legal community. They're hardworking and thinking, and you know, it takes as much work and um, critical thought to work productively and constructively with Indigenous law as it does with any other law. So uh, I'm just amazed at, at the caliber of the students that we have.
they will be really good lawyers. <laughs> Law is held in language. So all the people doing language revitalization are looking at resources where lawfulness and questions about how we live each other are, can be learned through language. Law is in art, like art is a way of teaching legal principles. So all the artists out there who've been carrying art practices forward <laughs> over the years are engaged in practices of law. The people doing music and ceremony are holding practices of law. So part of the magic is looking at all the ways people have nourished and sustained and kept the fires going in all the places that they could. Part of the joy of this kind of collaborative work is in nourishing and sustaining the work that is going on everywhere and building the relations between it to see each other's work and to understand the connections between those things. In order for law to be lawful, it also has to live inside us. So how do we create the conditions for us to be, understand ourselves as joyfully lawful in order to hold up those larger institutions as well. So we need both. There needs to be support for all the important work of indigenous philosophical and feminist and intellectual thought and all the work on the ground, keeping communities fed and nourished and medicines made and knowledge is passed and grandparents working with grandchildren. That's the work of law. You know, when people resist Indigenous law and they say it's going to undermine our country, it's like part of that is that impoverished view of law and it's a lack of understanding of their own world. You know, I've, I've often said that, you know, the kinds of critical conversations that Indigenous peoples are having around kitchen tables and so on about law are exactly the same kind of conversations that non-Indigenous people in Canada should be having about Canadian law enriching and expanding the idea of what does it mean to be a Canadian citizen. Law has always changed. We're not living under the same legal order now as we did. We have same-sex marriage now we never did before. Movement is possible and it's part of the, the normal, so why not let, let go of the notion that there is only one way of doing law? It's quite stunning how the community work, when you get out there and work with people to kind of see the, the kind of the deep principle work that's being embedded on the ground, the amount of of deep philosophy that's there and the the kind of staggering openness and invitation that the communities have for people to come and sit with and watch and learn by trying to build the relations. So that's been kind of unexpected for those of us who are settlers who often think somehow it's disrespectful to kind of try to move closer, but thinking about showing your respect by attempting to actually to stay and sit and listen and build a relation. That's powerful legal material.
the end of the interview, we asked Val about the paintings in her office. Because our organization, Raven, gets its name from the indigenous trickster stories of the Northwest Coast, we wanted to know more about her colorful images of ravens wearing headscarves and looking distinctly grandmotherly. It's pretty fun. You know, tricksters for many indigenous peoples are the first law teachers. And so this is a continuation of that, except for lots of tricksters, people often talk about them as only being men and they've forgotten about the female tricksters. The way people have talked about them has kind of narrowed over the years and, and I'm trying to push that back and expand it to, a, to the full-fledged trickster. Yes. We're at the end of another episode, and we are so grateful to the full-fledged tricksters who made up today's show. Dr. Val Napoleon, Dr. Rebecca Johnson, Elder Juliana Alexander, and future trans-systemic lawyer Carolyn Bolot. Music was by Jeremy Dutcher, and our show was produced by Andrea Palferman and Maya Wickler. I'm Susan Smitten, and thanks for lending us your ear. Stay well.